Anjan, welcome to The Forever Student. I love the name of the show, Forever Student. This is how every human should aspire to be every moment. It was actually like one of the big, big goals behind the show is to one, provide listeners with the tools and resources to become the best version of themselves. And, and the way you do that is by one, being open-minded, but two, through learning. Very true. I tell all my students, um, I'm a beginner too. I just began before you. Yeah. No, that's a very good way of putting it. I'd love to start our talk with chanting Om, if you don't mind. Let's do it. So as we chant Om, we exhale with three syllables. Ah, ooh, mm, and then hold silence for a bit. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. And if you're listening, you can do this with us. Uh, if you're driving, maybe don't do it with us. Let's take an inhale together. Inhale. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure. It's funny how that makes such a big difference, huh? Already sets the tone, right? It sets the tone, totally. So um, I'm fascinated by your profile. And um, I would love to hear more about your journey. One, as a meditation guide, a tantra mentor, a healer, um, however you want to speak about any of those three or all together, totally up to you. If you ask me, my journey is not as important as the journey of all the people I'm touching. I was blessed and privileged enough to be born into a family that practices yoga and tantra. I call it brown privilege because of my skin color. <laughs> when you're a child, you run away from what grandpa is teaching you and you just want to play. But as you grow older, by the time I was a teenager and then a young adult, I was like, wow, what is this treasure I'm living with? And that got me back. Subsequently, spiritual shopping happened, like it happens to many people. And out of curiosity, I accumulated a bunch of courses, became Reiki Grandmaster, Pranic Healer, Bunch of alternative therapies like yoga therapy, massage, kundalini massage, Ayurvedic massage, craniosacral therapy, started training in martial arts. So all of this has culminated to now me presenting the avatar as a meditation guide because you can't teach meditation. I can only guide people to feel it. As a tantra mentor, because again, you can't coach tantra. You can just help people to understand its concepts and its significance. And a healer. So the journey has just begun. And I would love to get into, because there's so much um, confusion about what those respective things mean. Which one do you want to start with? I think meditation. The art of being able to look within. And then the next step to observe who's the one looking within is meditation. Most people think it's esoteric. It's actually very functional. All humans have meditated at some point in their life. So anybody who says, I can't meditate or I don't meditate, it's a misappropriation because everybody's seen a beautiful sunset and in that moment, they have dissolved when the sky is bursting out into 500 colors or 100 colors and the ocean waves are reaching your ears. You don't remember your past. You don't remember your future. You don't even remember your name, your identity, your job, your nationality. You are merging in the moment. So these moments happen to all humans, whether it's through art or dance or making love or the birth of a new baby or running or skiing. As yogis, we don't want to leave this to chance. We want to be able to hack it. And that's why meditators are biohackers because we hack into this ability to reach this state of mergingness, of oneness, of transcendence anytime we desire. Yeah. What do you think are some of the biggest like misconceptions about meditation? I think the most common one I hear is I'm doing meditation. As long as you're doing, it can't be meditation. Meditation is a state of beingness, transcending from that human doingness and activity. You can do many things to reach the state of meditation. But once you're there, there's no more doingness. There's nothing to do actually. It's being. It is pure being, but even the thought of I am being won't exist then. It's just pure beingness. If you think I am meditating, you probably are not. Mm. 
at that point there is no you and therefore there is no an activity you do and therefore there is no awareness of the activity you do see these three things you which is the essence of you the activity that you do and the awareness of the activity all these three are not meditation the dissolving of all these three and in, in a way merging causes this state that commonly in english we use as meditation in sanskrit there are many words for this dhyana japa tapa dharana samadhi kaivalya multiple words in sanskrit and in the yogic lexicon unfortunately english just has one word for all of these experiences and we call it meditation mm. that's very true yeah and i often hear i mean people who who go through what's what's commonly perceived as meditation which is then sitting quietly eyes closed focus on your breathing that is exactly what it is sitting quietly with your eyes closed focus on your breathing that's not meditation mm. relaxation happens before meditation most people go to a meditation class to find relaxation but i always tell my students if you can be relaxed then you will find meditation and how do, how do you become relaxed beautiful question tension happens when your expectations don't meet your reality we all have a perceived reality we want somebody to behave in some way we want something to happen in some way we want something to occur in a certain fashion and that doesn't happen and then we get tension so if you can detach from that expectation have the dream have the vision you're always in a state of relaxation and this in zen is called self regulation the ability to be physically attached but spiritually detached the ability to look at things as temporary and have the golden words in your mind this too shall pass yeah. because everything is transient so relaxation is not difficult at all every human has multiple ways to find relaxation common ways could include laughter hugging or cuddling which gives you a melatonin oxytocin rush sleeping eating good food having great uh, experiences music dancing you got to find what works for you and put yourself in a state of relaxation I love what you said about expectations because that is something that I was taught many times is to relieve yourself from expectations. So It's impossible. As humans, we always have expectation. Like we have expectations that people will listen to this episode of ours. Mm. Can you detach from the expectation? Exactly. Have the expectation, don't own it. This concept in Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the ancient yogic texts, is called karma phala. karma means action phala means fruit all you can do is plant the seed you can expect the fruit but if it doesn't come you still did your act of planting the seed you're right it's detachment from expectations because what like for instance this episode we scheduled at 1:30 p.m. if i detach from the expectations that you are going to come at 1:30 p.m. sharp let's say you showed up at 2 p.m. the way that i react to that I could have been devastated by it and angry and frustrated or I could let it go. Very true. On the other side, if you had thought of Indian standard time and expected me to come at 2 then because I came at 1:30 on time you would have been pleasantly surprised. Correct. So either way is expectation can lead you to either tremendous joy or tremendous disappointment. So the way of relaxation is to detach from either side. Detachment for me is something I'm fascinated by because I've learned about this in in and and practiced this pretty heavily myself where I say what are the things that I am attached to right so you're attached to people you're attached to things things such as your laptop as your phone as your car as your house and what what would you be or how would you feel if those things were taken away right and I think if you're if you're okay with those things being taken away then you're not attached absolutely there's a yogic word called vairagya which in rough translates to detached attachment or inert attachment mm. which means you have it but don't own it because if you own it it ends up owning you the easy part is materialistic things like the laptop and the phone and the car the next difficult part is relationships 
my teacher, my student, my wife, my husband, my father, my mother, my daughter, my engineer, my guest. Very difficult. But you need to also detach from that. And the third one, which is the, let's say, the toughest level of detachment is ideas, concepts, mm. opinions. Identity. Identity, yes, but that's a mix of ideas, concepts, opinions. Right. So if you can have ideas and concepts and opinions, but be having a detached attachment to it, like an inert attachment, have them. We need to have opinions and identity, but don't own them so that you're open-minded enough that an opposing perspective might become your new concept. And so something like uh, religion would fall under that. So if I'm a Christian or I am a Muslim or I am a Hindu, I'm attached to the concepts to of the that concept faith. Of that yes, faith. Absolutely. So if we go and to numbers. When, you, when you're so attached to the concepts of that faith, your identity becomes I am Christian, I am Hindu, I am Muslim, I am Sikh, I am Buddhist. And not I am practicing Christianity, I am mm. practicing Hinduism, I'm practicing Islam. And when the identity becomes so strong that you start to feel your identity is superior to other people's identities, that's when conflict comes in. Yeah, that's how wars start. That's how all conflict starts. Yeah. I mean, war is the epitome of conflict, but even regular conflict, I'm black, you're white, so we have to fight. I'm from India, you're from Pakistan. This is identity based on borders. I'm from Russia, you're from Ukraine, so I got to kill you. Yeah. I'm Aryan, you're a Jew, so I got to create the Holocaust. Any kind of over-attachment to concepts creates ownership of identity, which creates conflict. Now, I want to go one step back to the attachment within relationships or the attachment towards people. And you could potentially tie this into what we're talking about now. Like when it comes to detaching ourselves from this, how do we go about that process? You can't. You can only have detached attachment. Understand that everybody in your life is temporary. You were born alone and you shall leave this body alone. Mm. Everything is transient. Disney fooled us thinking happily forever and Prince Charming will come on a horse and rescue me. The only one you can be in a permanent relationship with is you. So why not start this love story first? This beautiful attachment with yourself. And then everybody on the outside can get an overflowing of this love and then they can feel this love coming from you, you can be attached to them, but be detached from their attachment to you. So if they leave you after five years, you're okay with it because the five years were beautiful and full of love. But I think easier said than done. Absolutely. Certainly. Most of these concepts are easier said than done, which is why it takes practice, abhyasa. It takes a mindset shift. It takes intention and imagination, sankalpa. Of course, this is the game of life and this is how we play it. We can't say it's difficult to play the game of life, so I'm going to be, I'm going to have dysfunctional relationships. It doesn't work. You've got to play the game of life, and the game of life includes relationships, starting with a relationship with yourself. Yeah. And so that mindset, mindset shift, for, for me, what's, what's been extremely helpful is introspection and, and meditation and journaling and just... Tools for self-awareness. All these are great tools. I'm sure your other guests have listed them out. Yeah, they've been fantastic. And and I mean, quite frankly, things like, you know, working on my health as, as well as possible. So exercise, good food, sleep, etc. Having a clear mind. They all help very much Absolutely. with self-awareness. This is called hacking life. This is this called is living life. life. This is called not just living but thriving and exuberantly, vibrantly creating a magnificent life. We're all creating stories. Why not make your story magnificent? Totally. And that's what your podcast is about. That's why I love the name. And I don't believe in in short-term hacks. Like I believe in like genuine long-term lifestyle changes and then the, 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 the changes that you're going to see, the positive changes you're going to see are subtle and then they become evident. Are there any sort of habits or changes that, that you feel maybe as a society are increasingly necessary for us to implement in our lives? I'd like to first touch upon the concept of time. Mm. Short term, long term is only in our own minds. If every moment you can be introspecting, that's short term. But then every moment you're introspecting, therefore it's long term. 
If every moment you can find relaxation, that's short term. It's just a moment. But then every moment you're finding relaxation, so it's it's long term. Western psychology talks of habit formation. Western psychology talks of habit formation in specific 21-day, 60-day patterns. Mm. But the yogic sciences say you can create or destroy a habit within just a second. So habits are like switches. They're not like faders, which fade in and out. It's the decision of the habit. Of course, then you have to train the skill. Like if I decide I want to do five handstand push-ups, the decision is the switch in the habit. Of course, I have to develop the skill, which might be long-term. So with any habit, with any change, with any transformation, give up the notion that it's long-term, it's unreachable, it's only for the select few, it's for the privileged, you need to be special to meditate. All that is just propaganda. You are as capable as any other human. And don't let anybody take that away from you. You just need to decide this is what you want. And it has to come from real desire, not from a desire of pleasing somebody else and not from doing it for somebody else, not for aligning with what society thinks you should be doing, not for conforming to Instagram. If you can just do it out of your real desire of transformation, that is the mindset switch. What society needs today is a chance to remember who they are. And these chances are now expanding. I call it the consciousness revolution. We're having amazing talk shows like yours where people are starting to think about their well-being, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, energetic well-being, starting to think about the meaning of abundance, starting to think about what relationships truly mean and starting to contemplate on the question, who am I really? Who are we all really? What is the purpose of this life? If that telescope found so many million galaxies, am I really the only one I should be bothered about in this entire cosmos? Forget planet, forget galaxy, forget star system, the entire cosmos. So who am I really and what am I here for? So the beginning of these questions is a beautiful journey. What do you think is stopping people, not stopping people, what what do you think is um, the reason that People don't start this questioning to begin with. I always advise never to worry what people do or not. Mm. Everybody listening to this podcast, everybody listening to this podcast, if you can start with yourself, that's all that matters. The minute you start questioning why do other people do this or not do this, you are distracting from you doing this. You be in the state of relaxation. You be a shining light. You be loving. You be kind. You be compassionate. You be abundant. You take care of your life and you will automatically attract people around you who take care of their lives. So instead of worrying about how can I sort the lives of the world, start with yours. And and the reason that someone may... So like my example, for instance. So you have Stefan and he's listening to this episode. What's blocking me from taking that first step? Only Stefan can say. Mm. We can... Imagine a few situations, but it might not be anywhere near Stefan's reality. Everybody is going through something. And none of us are equipped to know what 100% the other person is going through. But Stefan is equipped to know what he's going through. So Stefan has to do what we call soul searching or introspection or looking within or journaling. Find help. Find coaches and mentors. There's plenty of people like us. Find resources. Subscribe to some channels and the main thing stopping would be one lack of awareness two lack of desire if you have a lack of desire to grow you will you'll find some way or the other the answer to how is however i like that i like that a lot could you talk us through tantra Very misunderstood concept, taken to the West. I call it California Tantra and restricted to the genitals. (laughs) Tantra is the ability to expand. It's the tools and signs and mechanism to find expansion through senses and beyond the senses. The tra in Tantra is trayati, which translates to expansion. Tana could mean the mind-body-spirit construct. Finding ways to live an embodied life. 
starting with your senses. We call them karmendriyas. Sight, sound, touch, taste, smell. Giving them their full expression. Giving them their full expansion. And then going beyond that to expand beyond the senses, to become a multi-sensory being, to really understand the abundance in this planet and this universe, and then to be connected with that which you can then call divinity or God or cosmos or universal love or Christ consciousness, whatever you want to call it, to have that connection with that essence of who you are is tantra. And how, how do you take people, th- like when you have a client or someone you're helping, what does the session look like? Because I'm based myself in a big city, most of my clients start with destroying numbness. Wow. The opposite of sensitivity is numbness. We don't even know what we are numb to. When I lived in Bali, when I lived in Thailand, when I lived in the Himalayas, this was not the case. People were already relaxed. Relaxed. People were already sensitive to nature and environment and the water they drink and the food they eat and the thoughts they have and the media they consume. So in an urban setting, because I'm based in Dubai now, the first step is breaking this numbness, increasing the sensitivity, making, making people question, are you really going where you want to go? Are you really mean, meeting who you want to eat? Uh, sorry, are you really meeting who you want to meet? Are you really eating what you want to eat? Are you really doing what you love? And are you living your life like your future self would want you to live your life? That sensitivity. To break away from the numbness and to break away from the numbness also is the numbness of emotions, the numbness of feelings, the numbness of sensuality, the numbness of eroticism, the numbness of sexuality, the numbness created by guilt and shame and people-pleasing and a lack of self-love. Why do you think that numbness is so much more present in urban societies than in Thailand, Bali, the Himalayas? I call it the productivity indoctrination. Post the Industrial Revolution, we have all been trained to soldier on. We're not soldiers. We're not in an army. We don't have to fight. We're not rats to be in a race. The idea that you have to work like a factory worker and live your life unfulfilled, which is get born, get an education, go to college, get married, get, have kids, have grandkids, retire, die. If that seems fulfilling to you, then Tantra will not appeal to you. If you want to snap out of that matrix and have a paradigm shift and want to find out, what the hell am I really here for? And that's when Tantra will appeal to you. In an urban environment, what happens is because of the competitiveness that has been ingrained into us from our school days, I mean, we stand in lines in assemblies like factory workers. We pay attention to the headmaster like the factory master. We wear uniforms and we sit in rows. We're being trained from our education system to conform. And with cities, the conforming is more evident because you still have to buy that car which the other person has. You have to live in the nice neighborhood. You need the newest Apple phone and the watch and the laptop and you've got to do what the others do. Otherwise, you cannot keep up with the Joneses. Whereas in more naturalistic environments like a Bali or a Thailand or a... I mean, there are big cities in Bali and Thailand. I mean, in Malaysia and in uh, Indonesia and in Thailand and India also. But I'm saying more nature-inclined, spiritually-inclined places like a Goa or like a Copenhagen Island or the Himalayas, you're not so worried about competition. The only competition for you is you. Mm. So you can still live in a city and have this mindset. This is called jumping out of the matrix. This is called just riding the waves of capitalism without letting it affect the essence of who you are. And that's why I call myself an urban practical yogi. Mm. I still live with these principles. So in an urban environment, because our society is designed in such a way to not chase fulfillment, but chase happiness. And that happiness is always fleeting. So it's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing to make you happy. Whereas... In the yogic system and in Tantra, we discover at this moment, I can be in the highest state of pleasure, highest state of vibrancy, highest state of full body energetic orgasms, highest state of ecstasy. So do I need anything more? Where do you think this materialistic mindset stems from? Is that conditioning from early on? There's nothing wrong with the materialistic mindset. 
It's combining the spiritual mindset with the materialistic mindset. Having either one independently is perhaps harmful. Mm. Tantra talks about the merging between the feminine and the masculine, between the light and the shadow, between the positive and the negative, between Shiva and Shakti. So you have to merge both of these. Tantra never says don't have an abundant life. It says have as many cars and houses and partners and phones as you want. Have abundance of everything, but don't own anything because everything is temporary. So Tantra is not against materialism. In fact, it is for materialistic pursuit. Finding of liberation through fulfillment of desire, not through renouncing desire, which is the monastic way. You have a desire, you renounce it, you find liberation. The tantric way is you have a desire, you fulfill it, you find liberation from that desire because it's fulfilled. You, don't, you recognize you don't need that desire for fulfillment. You don't need that desire for completion. That makes sense. You mentioned, this might seem like a strange question. You mentioned the schooling system, the headmaster, and us as you know, listeners listening to this. If you were, if you had the ability to change the education system, specifically at a younger age, rather than all of us sitting in a classroom and, you know, listening to this one person preach to us on how we should think, what type of changes would you implement? I don't think I'm qualified enough to change the education system. There's fantastic educationalists and educational reformists who are creating massive changes in how we perceive education. Anyway, with the advent of AI, knowledge will become irrelevant. What you know will no longer be important because the AI will probably know more than you. Already, if you want to know something, you just pick up the phone and Google it. So what you remember and what you know will probably be irrelevant and maybe you can even implant a chip onto your brain, a neural net interface that helps you to access any information at any point of time. So if I had to design an education system, it would be based on the heart of feeling and emotions and empathy and understanding and compassion and love. And going back to the natural way of living. You see, in the animal world, no animal needs to be educated how to walk, how to fly, how to suckle its mother, how to build a nest, how to lay eggs. These are natural things which humans also need not be educated on. This is very true. No baby has to be taught how to suckle milk from his mother. So education should support what you cannot naturally learn and give you the skills and tools to live in a functional urban environment. So you should be learning about relationships. You should be learning about how to find relaxation. You should be learning how to dream and how to manifest your dreams. You should be learning how to meditate. You should be learning how to create the reality that you want. You should be learning how to invest. This is what education should teach you. What is abundance? And you often hear the abundance mindset. Mm. What, what is it exactly? Let's start with needs and wants. Most people misunderstand needs. Let me ask you, is your house a need or a want? That's a want. Exactly. But most people think their house is a need. The universe provides us, the planet provides us with everything we need, whether it's food, whether it's shelter, whether it's clothing. But we all have wants. The minute our wants go beyond our means, that's when we find scarcity. Abundance is the ability to fulfill all your wants because your needs are fulfilled by the planet. And what are, what are common human needs? Food, clothing, shelter, companionship. Yeah. These are the only needs. And maybe if you're slightly more aware, spiritual needs. But food, clothing, shelter, companionship. Maslow spoke about this extensively. All systems that talk about human psychology talk about the basic human needs. But they're not basic. They're the only things we need. And anything beyond that is a want. So if we can change our mindset to understanding that everything we need is already there in plenty. That is the abundance mindset. With that mindset, we build on our needs and create a list of wants which are realistic and also have the abundance mindset that now that we have these wants, we just need to figure out how to bring these 
wants into reality, into our reality, that is the abundance mindset. Person A has 400 dirhams in his bank account. Person B has 400 dirhams in his bank account. Person A says, I feel poor. I feel unwealthy. I don't know what I'm going to do. Person B says, I only have 400 dirhams. I accept it, but I feel abundant. I'm going to figure out a way to make some products and sell it to people. I'm going to find a way to share my skills. I'm going to improve my skills. In six months, who do you think has more money in their bank account? Yeah, so B. abundance is this ability to understand that you can create any reality you want, that you can manifest anything you desire, provided you have the, the connections, the knowledge, the skills, and the wish and the desire. That makes sense. We've we've spoken about meditation. We've spoken about tantra. One of one of the other um, things that I found particularly interesting about you is the healing aspect. How do you how do you go about that? Like when you have a client or someone who comes to you, what role does healing play, or or how is that sort of defined in this context? All humans are healers. Our job is to remember that we are. Every single human has the ability to heal themselves. Biologically, if you see, we have amazing immune systems. We're designed to digest. We're designed to circulate life force and blood and air through us. The body mechanism is designed for healing. The mind mechanism is designed for healing. And the energy mechanism is designed for healing. Every human's job is to unlock these abilities. When people come to me for my sessions, I simply hold space to help them remember their healing ability. Whether it's a physical therapy session like a massage or pressure point therapy or an energy healing session or a counseling or a coaching spiritual healing session, either ways, all I'm doing is holding space for them to remember who they are. What do you mean by holding space? Creating a safe container where they can be vulnerable to accept that they have forgotten their magnificence without any judgment from my side and helping them through the steps needed for them to remember their innate, natural healing ability. That's holding space. Okay. I love this conversation. I'm really enjoying <laughs> Thanks, man. learning more about Me you. Me too. Um, gratitude is another thing that I really wanted to ask you about. I've seen tremendous, just because uh, I like to experiment myself with all these practices and, and really understanding the value behind them. Um, I have a very simple gratitude practice where one, my evening meditation will be based around it, but two is, you know, physically writing down um, however many things I'm grateful for at the beginning or at the end of the day or whenever it just pops into my mind or whenever I'm going through something that's challenging to take a step back and remember, one, the abundance mindset, I suppose, but then two, the things that you're grateful for. Where do you see gratitude playing a role? Everything you said is absolutely right. I would say if you already have a gratitude practice, then extend it to a gratitude lifestyle. Can you be constantly thankful for this moment? And to remember that constant thankfulness, just close your nose with your fingertips and your mouth and don't breathe out. Hold it till your face goes blue. And then when you're out of breath, as you exhale, feel grateful. Wow, I'm so thankful I'm able to exhale. If you can find gratitude in every moment, and then you're always in a state of gratitude. It no longer has to be a practice. It just becomes your way of life. And then you start seeing things with awe. You're not conditioned by society that feeds in fear and psychosis into you. For example, living in big cities, we have a lot of first world problems. I saw a friend saying his passport hasn't come back from one of the European embassies and therefore he's late to go to the second country which he already has a visa for. How many people would love to travel? Mm. How many people would have not have the money to travel? How many people have not even sat in an airplane? How many people don't have a passport? How many people don't have a passport? So if you can start with gratitude, then things that seem like a problem will no longer seem like a problem. You'll start seeing the silver lining. Your mindset will shift. This will give you enough dopamine rush to put in the action to get that desire fulfilled. Or for example, say you're going swimming in the ocean in Dubai. You could either complain it's hot. 
You can either be worried about the jellyfish because there's reports on social media about it. Or you can simply be thankful. You live in a place which has an ocean side, which has easy and free beach access, which has the sun not too harsh during sunset and clean water. You can be thankful for that. Now, if you're going to complain, obviously your mindset is going to shift and you're going to go into a negative thought pattern and you're going to cause trouble and tension and worry and anxiety for yourself. So if you can have this gratitude every moment, of course, have an evening practice like you do, but at every moment, I'm so thankful I met you, man. Yeah. At this moment. Yeah. You know, I don't have to wait for my evening meditation to thank the fact that Stephen has introduced me on his Forever Student podcast. Yeah. At this moment, I feel it. Similarly, every moment. And then if you can start looking at things you have, feel grateful for it. Start looking at people you have in your life, feel grateful for it. Start looking at the negative situations or situations that don't cause you pleasure, that cause you pain and feel thankful to it because you're growing from it. Look at events in your life that are causing you tension or distress and feel thankful to it because you're learning something from it. So gratitude is a way of life. It's not a practice. Yeah. I often have, you know, people that I speak to that tell me, you know, I did this morning meditation and I felt great. But then as soon as I got onto the road, there I got road rage. As soon as I got into the office, my boss said something and I snapped. This, this... Uh, let's call it an inability to stay in a peaceful state for the day. The goal and intention is very important. When somebody is meditating, if you're looking for a high from meditation, you will get it. Yeah. Don't let meditation become a high. Then how is it different from any other addiction? You can't be addicted to something as beautiful as meditation. So if you have the right intention for the meditative practices to reach the state of meditation, then it will sustain through the day. But if your intention is, I just want to feel high, I want to feel good now, that's a temporary high, just like any other high. You might as well go running and get runner's high. You might as well have some substances and get that high. You might as well have excessive lovemaking and get that high. You might as well binge on Netflix and get that high. It's no different from the high you get imagining I'm so spiritual because I'm meditation. It's fake. Meditation never says, yoga never says be positive. Yoga encourages sobriety. Don't be positive, don't be negative. Be in equilibrium. Yogascha chitta vritti nirodaha. This is the first sentence or second sentence in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which is the famous book that all yogis follow, which is train an unwavering mind, the ability to be in equanimity. And even your body always wants to be in homeostasis. Your mind wants to be in equilibrium. So why are you fighting it? If his practice was truly with the intention of sustaining it, then he won't get angry in the car. If his practice was just to get this temporary high, to tell his friends, hey, I'm meditating, to do it because it's cool, it's trendy, it's fun, then you'd rather not meditate. Find some other activity that leads you to the state of meditation. How do you get into that state though? Or rather, how, how would you stay in a state like that as someone listening to this who, who, you know, to them, all of this might be very neat? It requires training. But the main step in training is self-regulation. Constantly being able to check with yourself. I am having an emotion now. Why is this emotion being triggered? And then detaching. Instead of saying, I am angry, Understanding that I am feeling anger. The minute you say I am angry, that ownership thing we spoke about comes in where you end up owning and your identity becomes that of somebody who's angry. No, you are feeling anger. And then you self-regulate, take a few steps back. One practical tip I can give you, of course, breathing deep, counting, all that is helpful. But something I found always works with every single one of my client is humming. Mm. Just like you did now. Mm. So you can hum a song. Even when you chant Om, the last part is Mm. Imagine somebody is angry and they self-regulate and decide, okay, I'm going to hum. And they go, anger is not going to stay. It can be any tune. It can be a, a, a very static mm, humming. Very practical, very efficient, very powerful. It will immediately transform your state. Yeah, I found smiling also kind of does the same thing. You can smile and hum at the same time. Smile and hum at the mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. 
This is itself a beautiful practice. So very practical, of course. If you can take deep breaths, if you can count, if you can create some distance between the experience you're having and the one experiencing, that is meditation. Knowing that the subjective experience is not the objective experiencer. Mm-hmm. That is a state of meditation. It takes practice, but it's very, very easy and very doable. It's not for some special few. And indulge in activities that make you in this state. For some people, it could be dancing. Maybe for you, it could be running. Maybe for you, it could be painting. Maybe for you, it could be lovemaking. Maybe for you, it could be, I don't know, writing. Figure out what works for you that can help you transcend to break this attachment to your body, to your mind, to your spirit, to your identity, to have these magnanimous moments of magic, to create these instances of awe. Yeah, and I feel, you know, these activities that you just mentioned, at, at the, the base of it, presence is extremely important. Being able to give it your full attention, and I'll tell you why. One of the big challenges I see with with a lot of people is their is their inability to stay present. Yes. Without distraction. Absolutely. And, and often, what's often the case, and this is why people speak about their failed meditations, right? And and I just put that in parentheses because there's no such thing as a failed meditation. People, and I'm generalizing, but sitting by yourself quietly and facing the thoughts that enter your head without having to distract yourself, I think is increasingly becoming an issue. Like people sitting in silence or, or however, in, in whichever sort of shape or form, but if a tough thought enters their head, they grab their phone or they watch Netflix or they do something else rather than being able to sit with that. What are your thoughts on, on that? Humans have always had distraction. Mm. What has happened is the addictions have increased. The biggest problem in humanity today is addiction. When I say addiction, I think you will feel it's alcohol, drugs, substances. But everything that you're doing which is taking you away from your equilibrium is addiction. You might think going to the gym is good for you. But are you going to the gym to feel a certain way? And you're addicted to feeling that way. You get a bit overworked at office, you have a cup of coffee. You might think the coffee is the addiction. It's this feeling of being overworked and to escape that feeling that you're addicted to. You might think you're addicted to alcohol, but perhaps you want to get over some thoughts that are causing you tension. So it's that addiction to either those thoughts that are causing tension or the addiction to getting over that thoughts that are causing you tension instead of sitting with it and dealing with it. That is the addiction. The manifestation of the addiction can be anything. So when people scroll on social media, their addiction is not social media. The addiction is to have a restless mind. Meditation cannot happen before relaxation. So first, if their mind is restless, you have to learn how to relax. That's why many times I don't lead meditation sessions for people who are not relaxed. I put them in relaxation. How do you do that? There's so many techniques. You can do it through sound healing. You can do it through massage therapy. You can do it through holding space, saying kind and soothing words. You can do it through mantras like Om. You can do it by helping them shake uh, static energy out of their bodies. You can do it so many ways. Everybody's doing this and calling it meditation. It's not. It's a relaxation session. So go for as many ways to relax. It could be a massage. It could be a bubble bath. It doesn't matter how you find a way to relax yourself. But only when you're relaxed can you find meditation. When you're tensed, you cannot find meditation. I cannot go to somebody who's tensed or somebody who's hungry or somebody who has a deadline and say meditate. No way. They're not going to reach the state of meditation. It's like, would you rather go to a dance party to feel ecstatic and then therefore dance? Or would you rather just feel ecstatic and dance wherever? Mm. This is the difference. Don't let meditation become an excuse for not having relaxation. Do not meditate. Meditation is not for everybody. If you're tensed, meditation especially is not for you. You need to first train the skills of relaxation. 
only when you're relaxed can you then access the parts of the brain which can then look at the thoughts and say, okay, now I don't want to be distracted. You come, you go, float like a cloud. I'm not going to pay attention to you. I'm not going to engage with you. But if you're not relaxed, first step is relaxation. Otherwise, the minute the thought comes, you're running to your Instagram to get a cortisol spike from that like. I feel like a lot of people don't emphasize this enough. Like being relaxed before you meditate is not something that we're as Western society are told, right? It's more like, hey, let's let's schedule a meditation session. So in Western society, mostly when they say let's schedule a meditation session, it's a relaxation session. Right. The concept of meditativeness is fleeting there. The relaxation is the purpose of the class. So which is also okay. If you have one hour of relaxation, one day a week, that's more than what you have in general. That's already a step up. So I'm not against or for it. Meditation is a beautiful activity which can be done anywhere, anytime, for free, without any paraphernalia. Wherever you are now, unless if you're driving, then don't close your eyes. You can sit down, close your eyes, and reach this deep state of stillness and awareness. It's absolutely accessible to every human. Yeah. What's stopping, what's stopping someone from meditating? Many things, right? So first, like I said, is a lack of relaxation. Two is a misunderstanding of what meditation is. People sitting in cross-legged postures on Instagram are posing. Yeah. <laughs> they're not probably in a meditative state because they're worried about how the photo will look. So basing your idea of what meditation is based on what you've seen and heard rather than what you've experienced is the biggest thing that's stopping people from meditation. And therefore, all these illogical fears come in. What if I have to get some thoughts that I'll not be okay with? What if I can't sit down cross-legged? What if I can't be peaceful? I mean, so what? What if you can't do any of that? Meditation has no agenda. Meditation has no benefit. All the benefit comes prior to the state that we call meditation. The focus, the concentration, the peace, the tranquility, the calmness, all these are prior to meditation. After meditation, there's nothing. So it can't be a benefit of meditation. It's the road to the meditative state. In the meditative state, you no longer exist. Therefore, you cannot be meditating. There's a complete disillusion of any identity, any construct that you have created about who you are. Mm -hmm. There's a complete dissemination of all the stories, all the narratives that we have accumulated. And that moment you can call ananda or bliss, which is not a temporary fleeting happiness, which is a constant state of pure, relaxed, exuberant, vibrant, powerful joy. How do you, as Anjan, deal with like frustration and anger? Because I believe that you, you still feel it. Right? It's not like you don't feel it. It's just about how you react to it. Thanks to martial arts, yoga and tantra, I think my superpower is self-regulation. All of us feel emotions that pull us to either side. When somebody gives you praise, you get emotions that push up your ego. When somebody gives you insult, you get emotions that pull down your ego. The entire game is to find ways to reduce the crest and the trough of this waveringness. Mm. So my self-regulation ability, I guess, is a split second. Because my understanding of the fact that you are saying or behaving or doing something that's not matching my expectation is very high. And I have a detachment from my expectation of how you should behave. So it might seem like I never get angry. But my ability to work with anything that causes me upset is macro, micro, mini seconds, not even that much. It's gone. Self-regulation is the key there again. Nothing else. And we all have the choice whether to allow ourselves to be addicted to that anger or to self-regulate and say, hey, I choose relaxation. To allow ourselves to be in the illusion that this is permanent or to self-regulate and say, okay, will it matter five days later, five years later, five months later? Five minutes later. Five minutes later, will it matter? To allow ourselves to 
It's a choice to allow ourselves to say, what this person is saying is hurting me or to self-regulate and evaluate. Why is it hurting me? Why do I have a doubt? Okay, this person said you are an idiot. Do I really feel I'm an idiot? If yes, okay, how can I improve? If no, why should I get affected? Yeah. Either ways, if that person calls you an idiot, it shouldn't trouble you. So this is practice. You have to practice this. It's a lot of self-questioning as well, I suppose. Constant, asking, constant, constant self-regulation. Constant self-regulation. Questions are inevitable. But even going beyond the questions, going to the feeling. Do I feel like an idiot? You don't have to ask that. You just feel it. If somebody says, give me an insult that somebody would say. You are a terrible podcast host. Mm. Imagine I tell this to you. Mm. How does that make you feel? So it's not a question. Totally fine. Totally fine because you know you're not yeah. what he says. Or I am. Or you are. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter because you can improve. Yeah. That's it. That's the key there. Is to not base who you are on what anybody else says or does. And that is work with self-worth, self-love, being kind to yourself, being gentle with yourself, being loving to yourself. And this is yoga. Yeah. Yeah, I often ask myself, like, if someone, if someone would insult me, or someone would say something hurtful, or you have an argument with someone you love, I think I'm very similar to you. It might take me more than you know, zero point one seconds to get past, but it, it won't take me more than two minutes to get over. The key in self-regulation is remembering you are not a TV. Therefore, you can take your remote control back. Mm. I don't give anybody the privilege. To like make that. me feel in any way. Nobody has that privilege. I decide how I feel. At one point, if I want to feel angry, I get consciously angry. This is self-regulation. The ability to decide how I feel. Living deliberately. Feeling intentionally. And not by mistake. Not by chance. Not in a reactive way to what somebody else is saying or doing. And this is the ability to learn to respond and not react. What about... So, I spent 10 days in silence. Why? Um, at a... Vipassana retreat. Not Vipassana, actually. It was, um, it was in Nepal, Kopan Monastery. I uh, lived with 200 Tibetan Buddhist monks. It was the best experience of my life. Um, Again, I ask you, why? I, so, I like to challenge myself. Okay, I, fair enough. I did this not for any specific reason. It wasn't like I'm going to find answers or I'm trying to heal. No, challenging yourself is a beautiful reason. And that's why your podcast is also called Forever Student. Yeah. So good reason. So Most so, people go with the wrong reason. That's why I asked you why. They go with the reason to finding some spiritual enlightenment and some secret, some deep answer. You probably might get those. But if that is your objective and expectation, you could be disappointed also. I saw a lot of people like that. Um, I had done a lot of physical challenges at that point. And I was like, this is not, it, although it was relatively physical because there was a lot of, you know, six hour meditations involved, but the, the mental aspect for me was, was very appealing. And to then reflect on that and see what you get out of that, because you obviously disconnect from society, you disconnect from your precious phone and, you know, speaking to your family and to your wife and to your whoever. Um, but one of the things that we spoke about was death. And, and how it impacts if you lose somebody or if obviously you pass away yourself. So like we meditated on, you know, our, 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 us passing away and then also envisioning, you know, beautiful, close ones. How do you deal with, like, how do you view death and mourning and, and these sort of things. Because for me, obviously, if you lose a best friend, a lover, a parent, whatever, it is devastating. And, and by no means am I saying don't mourn, detach, you know, by all means feel because it's important. Why do you just sort of strike that balance between detachment and then feeling? At a philosophical level to understand that everything that's created will be destroyed. Temporary. Everything that's born will die. Everything that has come alive will one day no longer be. At the practical level to understand that love that you feel 
is beyond any person's physical body. The memories you have of them can soothe you even after their bodies don't exist. I've had many clients who've had close ones die. And a simple exercise of closing your eyes and imagining them hugging you automatically makes you feel like they're in your presence. Wow, yeah, totally. So the temporariness of this body and our attachment to it is a recognition that you can have as a human. But for those who can't, they need to grieve, they need to cry, they need to mourn, they need to allow themselves to move on. And our job is to be sympathetic, empathetic towards them as they might not get the concept of transience. At the spiritual level, you can say, anyway, our souls are transmigrating and we're in a spacesuit in this body so that whatever you call a spirit can experience this earth. Many ways of looking at it. With modern science and with cloning and downloading of our consciousness onto a clone, and with the advances in modern science, we might just delay physical death mm. in the next 20, 30 years. All the top scientists in the world, whether it's Michio Kaku or Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking, all have been talking about this. All the science fiction movies are talking about mm. it, right? So it could be possible. A lifespan extension is already happening. Reverse aging is already happening. Anti-aging has been on for the last few decades. And humans are slowly understanding. Um, we're already becoming... What is that word? Metahumans? No. Transhumans. Where we're no longer purely biological units. The minute we accepted a wristwatch or a pacemaker or a contact lens, we're no longer purely biological. We're already attached to these little devices on Cyborgs. our hand. We're already transhumans. And the next phase is just implanting, which is already happening in many places around the world, chips mm. onto us where we are bio-silicon biomechanical beings. Now, in the future, if science came and said, I'm going to give you prosthetic wings through which you can fly, would I say no? No way. I would take it because I'd love to fly. Similar with life expansion. So, humans might think they can cheat death, but like I said, whatever is born will have to go. Whatever is created will be destroyed, including this planet, including our solar system, including the sun. Of course, the time span is huge for that, a billion years and not the lifespan of a human like 80 or 100 years. So understanding this temporariness helps you to question the next step. What is the only one thing that's permanent? Mm. And this answer you get in the state of meditation. Yeah, this was one of the biggest things that I learned. Through the death meditation, when you did that, I'm yeah. sure you found out the one thing that is beyond death, that is timeless and spaceless. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that I really, I think it was the one, the, the, the most profound moment of those 10 days was that meditation in particular. Uh, I don't recommend death meditation to everybody. First, they have to do life meditation to be able to really live their life totally. 100%. And then when you're in a mindset like yours and you're challenging yourself and you're ready to explore and experience, then yes, but death meditation can be very overwhelming for many people. And it still was. Like it still was an experience that wasn't, it was heavy, right? Like it wasn't like a light, happy meditation. Like envisioning yourself die is, uh, is there's a darkness to it, of course. And and it was a guided meditation, and, and a few of the questions that we got asked were were so profound. It was, um, what would you have done differently? What do you regret? You know. And for me, it was immediately these thoughts of like, I have to apologize to this person. I did this to this person once, and it might have been when I was like, you know, eight years old. But nonetheless, like when I got out of these ten days, uh, and you know, got back to let's call it civilization, I would call these people and say, hey, listen, Beautiful. I'm sorry. What you did there was harness the power of imagination. Mm. So imagination is when you can imagine yourself in a situation so that you can bring change to the nation. When I say nation, I mean all of humanity, not just one nation. That is imagination. So harnessing this power is the ability to heal. All healers have tremendous imagination. They can imagine the problem in you as 
dust and they blow it away. Some shamanic tribes even still do this. They imagine as clay and they remove it. They imagine as black orbs and it moves out of you, right? So all healing is imagination. And therefore, if you have harnessed the ability to imagine your own death, that already will give you tremendous healing. That's why you felt like calling all those people. Mm. So I would urge you to have imagination. Don't be attached to that imagination and don't be stuck in it because that's being stuck in the future. At the same time, you have memories. Don't be stuck to the memories because that's being stuck to the past. Harness your imagination to live in the present. And this is the biggest takeaway you can take from this podcast is if you can train present time consciousness, deliberate living, intentional speaking, intentional thinking, intentional actions, and evaluate, am I really saying what I want to say? Is it truthful? Is it needed? Is it kind? Am I really doing what I want to do? Is it aligned with who I am? Is it making me joyful? Is it my purpose or am I doing it to please somebody else? Am I really with somebody I want to be with? Do I just want to be with one person or with multiple people? Be honest and truthful to yourself. Society might look down on you, but you've got to be honest. Am I really eating what I want to eat, living where I want to live? And you'll start questioning, why do I even live here? Why do I even do this? And then construct your life just like the way you'd like it to be. I love those. Don't leave it up to chance because your chance is created by the choices you make. And don't have the victim mentality of, oh, circumstance, oh, my boss, my job, my wife. Come on. You're the boss of your life. Recognize that divinity. Recognize that God or goddess-like nature within you. Recognize that empowered self. That was very powerful. I, I think I, a few years ago, I... I might have watched something or listened to something and and the crux of it was similar to what you're saying about questioning right like introspection and these sort of things and and the questioning um i went through with myself for hours that evening was it started with why do we do what we do like why do i do what i do why do i wear what i wear why do i live where i live what eat where i eat and then start to evaluate similar to what you're now saying Evaluate, is that in alignment? That's right. With and with me? that, you discovered your truth. Yeah, 100%. And if you don't have the time to ask so many questions, I'll give you one question you can ask. It is, who am I? Yeah. That one question itself will give you the answers to everything And the else. answers will come. It's the most powerful question. It's a million dollar question. Because, I mean, what I was, and again, this is just my education within, within this space, was to sit, in this case, I would sit quietly and ask myself that question and not look actively for answers. Like, don't try to answer the question. Just ask it. Is that sort of the case? or how There do you... are different methods, okay. but the idea is to know that you can never answer it. Mm. Because if you are answering it, then you have to question who is the one answering it. <laughs> as long as you have a name, shape, or form that is not you. So if you can identify it, there's somebody identifying it. This is called Advaita, the principle of non-duality. And it exists in beautiful books of Vedanta, end of the Vedas. Many beautiful teachers have taught Advaita. It's one of the most prevalent philosophies in the yogic culture. The concept of questioning who I am. And knowing that if you discover an answer, it can't be you because you have discovered an answer. So it's an experiential awareness. It's a knowingness. It's a remembrance. What are some, what are some texts, some books on the things that we have spoken about? I don't recommend people to read books. Okay. It will only end up confusing you. Why do you say that? The answer to who you are lies within you. You don't need to look anywhere on the outside. If your purpose is to find who you are, then don't read books. Mm. If your purpose is to expand and have more knowledge, which will be relevant in the next few years, like we said, because of AI and the internet, mm. then you can read. If your expand is to get, if your idea is to get new perspectives, which you haven't heard, then you read. But if your idea is to find out the answer who you are, no book can help you. Mm. So if there were books that you would recommend to expand or 
perspectives? I would say start with any books on non-duality philosophy. Um, You can also start with Lao Tse's famous book. Then you can read some yogic texts like the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana. You can read um, the Jataka Tales, which is a beautiful compilation of simple stories based on the concepts from the Vedas. You can read books on Tantra. Vijnana Bhairava Tantra is a beautiful book where Shiva gives 112 techniques to Shakti to discover the answer to who am I. I would recommend books by Osho, by Ramana Maharishi, by Swami Vivekananda, by Sri Aurobindo Ghosh. Lots of options. Lots of options. But I would also say you don't need to read. Yeah. Sit down, look within. Yeah. Find a teacher if you have to. Read that person. Read the humans you meet. So many chapters there. Yeah. Could you before we before we say goodbye, I would love to know or I would love for you to share where people can find out more about you. And also, I mean, you have your own show. You know, what is that show and where can people listen to it? So I have a podcast. It's called Talk Wellness. It's on all the platforms, just like your Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Audible, Google. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter as Meditate with Anjan or log on to meditatewithanjan.com. But more than connecting with me online, I'd love to see you at one of my meditation sessions. Where are these sessions and when do they take place? Different wellness centers, different yoga studios, sometimes at the park and the beach and the mountains if the weather's good. And many times at people's houses also, so that I can also cleanse the energy of the space. And wherever I am is the meditation. Right now, the meditation was at our podcast studio. (laughs) Yeah, and it was beautiful. I'd like to thank you for being here today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for the great questions and insights and... uh, purposefully timed um, thoughts. Thank you. Thank you so much. 